thank you for coming here today. It's me, Linda Sage, on Learning From Life. One thing I can promise you, there'll be people to meet over the airways here you'll never forget. Some, as long as you live. Let's just say, most have had what could be termed as an interesting life. It's not what happens, it's how you deal with it. And one line from any of them could change the way you deal with things forever. There'd be landing from all parts of the planet, all ages, backgrounds and experiences. Telling the truth of how it was and how they manage things may just help you miss a rock or two along your road too. Hi and very warm welcome. I'm Linda Sage and this is Learning From Life. We can learn in a classroom but it's not always the best place to learn lessons that we take right through the rest of our life. Joining me today is of course an amazing person. All my guests are so amazing. So this gentleman has quite a story to tell. John Vanick is a life coach and so much more. So John thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much Linda. Thanks for having me. It's going to be a great conversation because I know you have an awful lot in your life to share. Yes, I probably have. <laughs> Let, let's just go back for the beginning then a little bit, because if uh, people that are listening don't know, who is John Vanick? Well, basically, I'm, I'm a life coach and I qualified as a life coach through the European Mentoring and Coaching Council back in 2016. But I've been working in the field that I'm I'm most experienced in, which is mental health, since um, about 10 years previous to that. And I really realised that what I was using with my life coaching, with my clients, I should say, my mental health clients, was was coaching. Because I came into the field of mental health at a time when the government at the time was promoting access to mainstream life as an integral part of the recovery pathway for people who'd been through mental health crises or mental health experiences and the techniques i was trained in but they were very new um, because really that approach hadn't been used in mental health previously if you'd had a long-term mental health condition once you were out of hospital you were in those days seen as somebody who probably would have to live on benefits for the rest of your life or would be just going to halfway houses and day centres and and that would be your life from that point on. And then this mainstream approach came in and it was championed by the government at the time. Um, so it became a very, a very kind of widespread approach. Although I don't think all mental health organisations took it up, but the one that um, that I worked for did very, very strongly and had a very good track record. So it's um, it was essentially enabling people to get back to mainstream life after they've been out of it for maybe a long time, based entirely on their own choices. Um, and did you want me to clarify a bit more about how that works? If, if you want to, yeah, if you want to talk about it. Yeah, it's just that um, I think what happened at the time is that the think tanks identified about six or seven main areas of life or living that people find important. They might not find all of them important, but they'll find some of them or more than one of them important. And they're the kind of obvious things like employment or self-employment or sport and exercise or um, spiritual things, faith and worship and uh, going to yoga, those kind of things. 
uh, or the arts, another really important one, uh, family, etc. So if I was um, referred through the mental health services, a client who wanted to go on that sort of journey, I would be working with them to identify where it was, where, where it was they wanted to access in mainstream life. And if needed, I could mentor them in accessing a particular venue or a particular place um, if they, again, entirely depending on how much or how little support they actually asked for. So it's very, very person centred. Um, and, and that's yeah. important because everybody is different and they're looking at different things and they need different things. Yes. I mean, I was specialising because we had a whole team of what they call bridge builders, um, essentially coaches. Um, I was specialising in areas like the arts and what they call cultural communities, which could be anything from going back to church or temple or yoga or Tai Chi. Um, but as I'm kind of arty myself, I was very happy to work with people, helping them kind of go to music studios or do creative writing courses or exhibit their own paintings and do exhibitions and do record launches. And that was, we found funding for it through what they call personal budgets which are already built into the mental health system and still are, but hadn't really been used for anything more than just personal care or having a home help, a very kind of unimaginative things that they've been used for. Uh, but with mainstream coaching, we were able to get, I suppose, personal budgets diverted towards things that clients really, really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I, I, you know, I know that you specialise there in sort of mental well-being and the social inclusion, and I think that's a huge one because, especially at the moment, so many people, when they have mental health issues, would actually say they prefer to say they've been in prison rather than they've had a mental health issue because of the stigma. That you know, that's really true, and um, oddly enough, having been in prison does give you a few advantages. It sounds very strange. Because if you're sectioned and you're under, I think it's called a forensic section, you, you'll you still be given more support when you get back out into the community as a result of being under that particular section. Um, so once you're out of hospital, you, you're entitled to more ongoing support than a lot of other people may be able to get. And at the moment, there's so little support and so little, um, so little for people generally that you know, I can understand somebody, you know, actually, yes, I'd rather say I'd be in prison. Um, I think there is huge stigma around mental health and particularly around what you're saying, which is the hospital side of it. You know, when it gets as bad as breakdown, which happens to about one in 20 people, <laughs> it becomes something we're not allowed to talk about. Um, so there's still a big kind of block around that. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, denial is such a big part of all mental health issues. Denial into actually getting some support because everybody's saying, oh, I'm fine, I'm okay, it's just a bad day and it's going on until it really takes your knees out from under you. Yes, yes. Um, well, what happens with a, a breakdown from, from what I've noticed that people have gone through them and it could be the people you least expect is it's like a kind of volcanic eruption of of the authentic self all at once, <laughs> including stuff from your childhood, trauma, whatever it might be. And um, it, just, it must be so terrifying because it's all coming up at once. 
and uh, forcing you to address those issues. Um, yeah. Yes, suppression is like a champagne cork, isn't it? You know, if you can take it off gently by choosing to do it, or you just shake the bottle and it, everything comes out. Yeah, yeah. And pity it's not champagne. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but how have you got involved in mental health? Because a lot of people don't get involved unless they've got a personal issue or they've had a connection with it in some way. Yeah, there is a personal issue. It's really a best friend of mine. Um, who, whose family's had a history of mental health problems and who developed them herself in her late 20s. And for years, I didn't really understand. I was in as much denial as everybody else. I uh, thought, so, well, he probably just needs to get a job or do this or do that. And because this was a very articulate person, um, you know, so you kind of instantly assume that they're going to be very adequate for whatever comes up in life. And that's wrong. Uh, so I had to dismantle a lot of my own blindness around mental health, but I understood there was a genuine uh, problem or condition or something that had to be addressed by professionals. Um, so it, that was definitely a big trigger for me, just understanding that my friend had these genuine issues. And um, that's probably been the main trigger, to be honest. And how do you see this going forward? Because obviously COVID has made a huge amount of difference to the lives of so many people. Well, uh, what's happened with the lockdowns is that uh, what services that have been available, I mean, the ones I'm involved in have shifted to either conference calls or individual calls. And um, actually some of that works out well. It's one of the strange things is because if you're previously used to a kind of uh, day centre or drop-in centre setting, the kind of one-to-one -one conversations that go on there, they, they, they can be done confidentially, but you're in a space which is being used quite busily um, going on all around you. So whether those one-to-ones have got enough quality as they could have is debatable. And with the lockdown and having genuine one-to-ones with people over the phone or whatever, it seems to be mainly over the phone rather than Zoom, um, I'm actually getting much nearer to my clients and probably more able to be effective. So there's been a strange kind of positive that's come out of it. But I have noticed that nearly all my clients are out back out, they're all back out in the community, some working, some not. They don't seem to have, they seem to be a patchwork of support uh, you know, it doesn't really come from a community mental health team, or if it does, that particular key worker could could be away or not working. A very, 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 very sort of patchy support for people. Um, but again, you know, you find places where I'm working in uh, mental health resource, where we've managed to scrape together funding to give people this sort of continuing support. And because of the lockdown, some of that support is I would venture to say it's probably uh, a little bit better than what we could give before. I mean, I don't know about you, because like you, mine was very much sort of a personal basis, a one-to-one -one or group work or training. But my thought about working with people on the phone or on Zoom, I was a little bit reticent, but people actually have adapted far better and they're more willing to, to interact with these than they were before. Yep, it seems to be. Seems to be the case. Yeah, um, yeah. It, I've, it hasn't been bad for for my practice, really. 
Um, what's one of the things that you've obviously this year we've learned so many things if we didn't know about technology or if uh, we didn't know about uh, getting out there and promoting things we've learned an awful lot so what's something you've learned this year well, I've learned that people who've been through these kind of mental health experiences are able to give each other a huge amount of peer support um, and they'll know things that I don't know they'll be able to signpost each other to places of support or help or self-development that I don't know about. Um, I've learned more about peer support this year than I have previously. Yeah, it's a, it's a very strong point there. As, as long as you've got the people, um, it's a bit like when they've gone through to make sure that they keep going and they keep learning. Yes, I mean, that's the thing. It's le everyone wants to grow. It seems to be a human thing. We're not happy if we're not growing one way or another, and um, and that and that shouldn't exclude anybody. Very true, it, and there's so much out there now to choose from. The only problem I don't know about you, but uh, since COVID's hit, and obviously a lot of people financially have been strapped, and all of a sudden we've got a huge influx of life coach, well-being, mental health specialists who really aren't that in the field. You know, what, what's your thought on this? Well, when I first um, went into coaching, I was. The reason I did it is because I, I discovered there was a course, a proper um, EMCC course, that was particularly for mental health and well-being. So I thought, well, I've got to do that because I've been doing coaching. I might as well learn the techniques. Um, but then when I got into the wider world of coaching, people were telling me, oh, it's great because it's not regulated. And I said, well, just a minute, I'm highly regulated, I have you know, mm -hmm. um, and I want to be as well. So I found that a bit disconcerting when I got into that big wide world of coaching. And for a period, you probably noticed about two or three, four years ago, the whole phrase life coach was very discredited because it's become a cliche. Because like you say, everyone was just putting on that label. Um, was well, so I'm proud to wear that label. <laughs> um, that's, that's how I feel about that. And, and you're in a very beautiful area in England as well. Yes, I'm in East Sussex. We've been here for three years, just coming up. Um, yeah. <laughs> do, do you find that sort of, sort of different areas have different types of problems? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, we were living in Northern Ireland in Derry for six years, which is a fantastic place, fantastic people, fantastic music and arts. It's, and um, we were there for family reasons. And of course, you've got a whole history there in Northern Ireland and mental health is almost like a daily thing. I wouldn't say there's any stigma, really, because every family seems to one way or another, whether it's historically or to do with where they're living or with the kind of lack of opportunity for young people, um, families have taken on board the whole mental health crisis. Um, there's a lot of tragedy, like young men committing suicide, that goes on far too much in Northern Ireland. But the access to counselling, even now with kind of cuts going on, is much, much more widespread. And you'll see entire families going for counselling. And there's no, not that I can see anyway, no stigma attached to it. So that's a very different environment. Um, as over here, we're still fighting to get bits of support here and uh, try not to mention the M word and that kind of thing, you know, all that's still going on. 
when do you think is a good time to actually start with mental health awareness? Well, I think I've, any company or business, I've said this, which employs, employs maybe 10 or more people, should have a kind of kite mark. I know you've got mindful employer, um, but if there's offering any kind of goods or services, one of those services should be some kind of mental health with a counselling, mental health first aid, or a very good health insurance scheme. And it doesn't even have to be things are offering for free, because people are willing to, to pay out for, for good support. Um, and people who have mental health breakdowns come from every single walk of life. Um, so I just wish it was more like, I've got my fair trade mental health kite mark for my business. And one of the services that's available for people is uh, I don't know, a good health insurance scheme which might cover you when you're if you have to go to hospital for a breakdown um, or we've always got access to counselling not just for our employees but also for our customers you know why not mm -hmm. so that uh, what I'd like to see is a kind of post breakdown awareness of mental health um, without stigma or without prejudice. You've mentioned quite often about the, the arts. How are you involved with this? Do you, are you a performer as well? Yes, I'm a songwriter, musician, and um, that's massive for me, really. I just, uh, yeah, it's been really important. Um, so anything to do with the arts is kind of, <laughs> you know, it's sort of the, like, the, the area I live in, really. Um, so anything to do with the arts, I just love. And if people want to be helped to access anything to do with the arts, I can probably help with that. So very much, I mean, music has a huge effect on mental health. It can really make you happy. It can bring you down. It can relax you. I mean, music is such a key point of most people's lives, I think. Yes. I, well, I can't imagine life without it. Very, very true. I think we turn to it really subconsciously and sometimes in sort of spiritual form as well. Yeah, um, what do you mean exactly? I think that, you know, sometimes we don't even realise, you know, we put a piece of music on because of some sort of way we're feeling or some memory, but quite spiritually it's able to sort of transform us as well. Yeah, I think, I, yeah, I think you're dead right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a performer or a singer. Nobody wants to hear me sing. It's terrible. But it really amazes me to see how much music comes out of a person. Yes. Well, you mean somebody who hasn't been exposed to it or? Anybody. I mean, yeah, just the power of being able to sing. I mean, I sing, but only ever in the shower, in the car, where nobody can hear me. Um, yeah. Our technique will be able to say, it's terrible. My singing is terrible. But when I hear this, this, sort of tone come out of a human body sometimes yes. it is it's just spiritually moving yes it is yeah it is yeah so what's something that uh, is really important for you that you haven't learned in school but has affected you through life well uh, there's it's, um there's one thing that's really kind of been brought home to me i mean when i used to go for job interviews and not get the job i'd often be told i was too laid back and um, I sort of thought, oh, maybe that's a defect. And then I thought to myself, well, if I'm doing coaching, more and more I need to be doing non-judgmental listening. And I find non-judgmental listening 
to be one of the best skills anyone can have. Um, and so I, that's one thing. That one thing I have learnt to to apply non-judgmental listening, and maybe as that have as a, a key tool. Um, we don't always have to intervene in people, um, even if that's what they've come to see you about. First and foremost, they want you to listen. Um, so that's what I've I've learnt. So going forward, what does the future hold for you, John? Well, I'm just I've been asked to do more work. Um, it's been surprising because of the state of mental health, um, and I'd like to be able to persuade businesses more to flag it, flag up mental health um, as part of their repertoire of products and services. Uh, that's really what I'd like to get into, um, alongside all these all the work I'm doing with clients. So you're going to be busy. Yes, I, yes, and lockdowns have made me busier than ever. <laughs> and so how do you look after your own mental health? Well, uh, music, like you say, it will mm -hmm. be a huge part of that. Um, and I can, I'm lucky, I can just play guitar or record a song or, or do some writing um, whenever I wish, really. So uh, that's one thing. Exercise is pretty important. And I acquired an allotment this year or last year. And that needs everything done to it, ground clearing and everything. Uh, that's pretty therapeutic. Um, and then living somewhere near the Sussex Downs is pretty good as well. Yeah. Um, so all, all the usual things, nutrition, exercise, music, the arts, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. All the things we know, but we don't always do. No, and I found a way of making yourself do them now by using what they call Kaizen, you know, the Japanese where you apply very small changes and uh, adjustments, even tiny adjustments, and that stops you procrastinating because you know you can do something in that area, even if it's only a very small thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and because procrastination is a kind of anxiety in itself. Yeah. But it's a choice as well, isn't it? Yes, and that's what's so horrible about it. Because yeah. yeah, we'd prefer to think of ourselves as victims rather than having choices. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, John, thank you so much for being with us. Where can people get in touch with you if they want to? Well, I'm on LinkedIn under Social Inclusion and on um, Vanek Life Coach on Facebook and vaneklifecoach.com website um, or even email uh, vaneklifecoach at gmail.com. Fantastic. So I'm just going to put you on the spot now. And if somebody's out there thinking about, you know, getting in touch with somebody or not really sure about doing something, what's your advice for them? Not sure about doing something in, in a particular direction or? Oh, or get, getting some support, getting help. You know, they're still in the state situation saying, yeah, everything's OK. I'm OK. But they know they're really not. Yes. Um, yeah, they should. Well, see, that's. They sh anything that's got mental health flagged up, if they may not be thinking along those lines, but any kind of therapy will probably help and they probably want to choose their own. So it, it could be talking therapies or it could be a counsellor, it could be arts therapy. Um, so just reach out to any area that offers therapeutic services. Fantastic. So thank you so much, John, for being with us today. We really appreciate your time and hopefully you'll stay safe and well and get through this strange time. Thank you very much, Linda. 
And thank you everybody for being with us. The good thing about podcast is you can go back and you can listen to it several times because there's some real golden nuggets there from John. So take your time, go back. And of course, you've got all the other archives to listen to as well. So for now, stay safe, take care of yourself, and I'll be back with you very soon. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded in conjunction with the Chapel FM Art Centre and East Leeds FM radio station. For more information about them and all the good work that they do is www.elfm.co.uk And to know more about what Linda Sage is doing, her website is www.lindasage.com Also on all the other social medias.